Hey, After Buzzers, you are checking out OJ Made in America, ESPN's 30 for 30, episodes 2 and 3. You're tuning into the destination for TV superfan discussion, After Buzz TV. And now, let the buzz begin. Hey there, thank you for joining us. You are checking out OJ Made in America. As we said, episodes two and three, we are cramming in four hours of footage <laughs> into an hour for you. I know that you've been watching the documentaries. If you're like us, you are as addicted to it as possible. I am Jill Monroe. You can catch me on all social media, at Stiletto Jill. And also make sure you're following After Buzz. To my left are my co-hosts, Gabriel, Josh, and Michael. Please introduce yourself to the people. Hey, fans. You can catch me all the time on Twitter at WG on TV. I'm Josh Rodriguez. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Josh underscore Rodriguez underscore. What's up, everybody? I'm Michael Rippey. You can catch me all over social media at Mike Rips, M-I-K-E-R-I-P-S. So, now that you have met the panel, we have to jump right in because there's a lot to cover. So, episodes two and three sort of brought us to the point of OJ's career, um, the later years, his last years in Buffalo and then on to San Francisco, and also his relationship with Nicole. When we left off in episode one, we were just meeting Nicole, right? Yes. And she was 18 years old, a waitress at the Daisy in Beverly Hills, and that's where OJ met her, immediately knew that he wanted to marry her. We got the details of a rough first date and now we're here they have been dating oj is on the twilight end of his football career and plunging head first into his acting career and we're also looking at at the same time the city of los angeles and while oj is moving further away from the community and the issues that are taking place there in south la there is much strife between the people of the city and the lapd so where should we start, guys? There's so much to talk about. <laughs> so much to talk about. Let's start with OJ and Nicole and the development of their relationship. Um, for me, I thought it was interesting. I think that we talked about it at the end of episode one, mentioned that OJ and his first wife, Marguerite, lost a child and how yeah. difficult that was on their relationship. Obviously, OJ and Nicole hooked up before his marriage with Marguerite was finished. And um, he became a very different person with Nicole. So um, from their early beginnings through what we saw, how do you feel about their relationship and what we were introduced to, the tender side, I guess? Well, it's it definitely seems like it's a very passionate relationship, and you sense that right from the start with their first date. So you can tell that it's probably roller coastery, high highs, low lows. You know, they got aggressive on the first date. Which, you know, that means that they were must have been so passionate. And, and so that's the one thing. That's I a got, word. <laughs> you know? Well, I think that it's very important to note just how compartmentalized um, they that OJ was. I love the stories that we have from uh, Nicole's friend, Robin Greer, and also friend of OJ at the time. Similar to how Joe Bell was, his input was so crucial in parts one. I think she was the star part two in her insight. And that's what makes this 30 for 30 so amazing. Like we talked about the new material. The fact that she brought it up and she said so perfectly that he was so compartmentalized that he tied so much of his pain and so many emotions to Marguerite. And the fact that he was able to be a very different person with Nicole it was very interesting to learn about, and I think it really adds a lot to the character and understanding him and understanding how it started to unravel later on. Yeah. I found the most interesting part, when his daughter died, how he was able to close the chapter on not just his daughter, but Marguerite as well. That kind of 
took me back. Like, he, like wow, he was able to actually move on from his daughter and a relationship and use that to move on to Nicole? I, I For me, it what it felt like is that he had already moved on from it. Marguerite and used that as an excuse yeah, to weird, propel right? himself into his relationship yeah. with Nicole and a very controlling relationship. Right. I mean, in episode one, there was discussed how two weeks after their first date, he was getting an apartment for Nicole, who was 18 years old and in college, had just graduated high school, yeah. and a car and like I don't want you to go to school anymore so um, there definitely was something about her that drove him in a very different direction Yeah, and it came at a perfect time because he was ending his career and as I think he said in his Hall of Fame speech Nicole for him helped transition he said he learned early on those first three years in Buffalo how he knew that he was going to be a mess without football that he would have to have something to funnel his time in and I think that's when he made the decision that Hollywood and acting and where I can get that constant attention is going to be it and somehow she fed into that. I also thought that from part one through part two and three we can clearly see the evolution of OJ as a human I mean I was saying after part one there were so many scenes and footage of him as a as a young man that I thought he was you know charming kind of a lot more humble had a humility to him at least that I had seen from part one and and part two and three you start to see the transition from that character to a more aggressive loud outspoken you know he's got years on him and you start to see how he's kind of changing so um let's kind of step back then and take a look at the city of los angeles and what's happening with it at the same time the documentary talked about in 1979 there was a woman um in south la uh, actually in watts eula love who was shot eight times over a delinquent gas bill and it just kicked off a series of murders and unrest in South LA with police going into um, apartments and homes and just destroying the home, looking for drugs, small amounts of um, ounces and things like that. Meanwhile, over in Brentwood and those areas, they have no idea that this is happening to people. They can't imagine that something like this, the police would do something like this. I remember growing up here in the 80s, there was even, because there were tanks that would go into those neighborhoods to break down the doors, and there was a rapper that had a song called The Bataram. I mean, it just looking at that footage was terrifying. You can't imagine being at war, and that's essentially what it looked like. The thing that was interesting to me that I forgot that I didn't realize is during that time period, L.A. actually had a black mayor that had been in place for 12 years, like through all of the Daryl Gates, who was the police chief who um, followed the first one who sort of set the military order for LAPD and the standard to take no prisoners. Um, L.A. still had a black mayor. So it's kind of interesting that there was this much going on within the community when at the top ranks of the city, they were represented in theory. So I know that's a mouthful. Um, (laughs) What do you guys think of all of that? I mean, it's just so much. Definitely. For someone who doesn't remember well those days, and uh, really I've only ever seen sparing images as far as on television, and, you know, because it is brought up, you do learn about these things. For myself, seeing that, I think it really is very startling, and it's very different to see, uh, to know the world was very different back then, and uh, I think one of the parts of 30 for 30, as I understand this episode, they bring out parallels. There are supposed to be things you notice that, you know, 
We still struggle with a few things, issues. It's no secret that there are areas in the United States still struggling to have cohesion and I think fair judgment with the their local police department. So I thought having that, it was very... Very informative, very insightful, and it really... A lot of Ferguson parallels, almost, if you think about it. That's where I was going to say. So much of Baltimore. There's a lot of parallels, not just Baltimore, but especially right now in the type of age and climate that we're living in, that you can look at the part two and three and start to see, man, this stuff was going on then, and we're starting to see a lot of it kind of go on right now in our times. And it's it's crazy for me, just speaking personally, I knew of the Rodney King incident, but Mm -hmm. I wasn't old enough to actually understand what happened during that incident and I wasn't old enough to even remember the cases that they discussed before like the case you just mentioned I forgot the woman's name when she was shot in the back of the head Latasha Harland was a teenage girl that was shot in the back of the head by a Korean grocer who received five months probation for the murder so as you can see it sets up to show that the city of Los Angeles especially in South LA was really fed up with LAPD seemingly not taking um Black Lives Matter, sort of seeing that in reverse at that time period, not valuing the lives of these community members. And I thought uh, there was an interesting quote. I I have it here. Uh, I forgot who said it, but he said that racism is not the Korean killing her, but racism is the court system that allows her to kill her. Absolutely. And I thought that was an awesome quote. There There was also the footage when the riots began of the the truck driver that they dragged Reginald out. Denny. Oh, yeah. Reginald, Reginald Denny, that yeah. That was that was crazy. That was terrible. It, I mean I remember the footage from the Korean in the in the grocery store and then the same thing. Some of the footage, I can't believe that it's like I, I don't know if it's because I've never seen it or where it's been, but I don't I don't feel like it's been as public some of this well, footage I, to I all of us. It was public, but the idea is in 1989, 1990, it was regional news, it was local news. It wasn't on the 24 seven news cycle that we're currently in, so it may not travel have traveled to other areas of the country with the same intensity. I remember the riots. I remember being a kid and going out like with my friends, like we're gonna go ride around and see what this is and I've obviously never seen any military action or things like that but that is exactly what the city felt like so let's bring it back around to OJ what's happening with him in this time he and Nicole got married in 1985 they had their first daughter um, soon after and now we start to see a change in their relationship when we start to hear about OJ is still a philander. He is still out in those streets as most, <laughs> you know, professional athletes of that time yeah. were known to do. He's partying. He's going to all white golf clubs, getting accused of cheating at golf, which is a he, great impression. Was, he wasn't trying to hide it either. He the was best part is they had the golf cart that followed him called the Juice Patrol. <laughs> yeah, that was great. incredible. Like that The detail funny. is so great. What they called the OJ? They called it the, the Juice Patrol. Patrol. Yeah, the Juice the Patrol. golf cart that would follow him because it was so obvious that he was cheating. Like that was amazing. The one time where he just put it on a tee. Yeah. Like in the <laughs> Who does that? Who how does yes. that happen? Who explains that and thinks that I, that is logical? Right. But you know what that goes to? OJ thinking that he, he can, can talk away, away yeah. talk yes. his way out of everything. That's right. a reoccurring thing. And it's, yeah. it shows you it's kind of foreshadowing. It shows you his character. He thinks he's above anything at this point. He can just get away with it. And golf the most is supposed to be a gentleman's game. <laughs> and he's trying to get away with that it. That's true. So <laughs> it's it's that was some incredible footage. They explained it very well that the thing about golf uh, is that you're proud if you know how to play it. Right. (laughs) Yes, that's the whole point that so many people get into it, despite the fact that it's a slow game. It's the fact that when you play, when you get your clubs and you're looking at the green, a lot of people think it's easy. It's not, so that's why they're proud of it. But I think this point also illustrates something 
the growing change in OJ as far as maybe not being able to put up so many appearances. You know, if he was truly committed to blending in, so to speak, I feel like, would he have taken golf more seriously? That's one of my biggest questions. I mean, I think you have to look at OJ's age. What we kind of skate over is the fact that OJ was 12 years older than Nicole when they met. So by this point, five, seven years later, he's mid-30s. He's a businessman. A lot of business deals happen on the golf course. So, And with his competitive edge, he's, you know, doing a bunch of different... He's doing his... OJ, which we saw, you know, he felt like his face was the ticket to get him into anything that he desired, no matter what. And we see how that played out in his home life with Nicole, where they obviously had a very passionate and loving and fun relationship. Well, they 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 talk, they went to the wedding, and the, his yes. wedding speech was really nice. I really enjoyed the scenes from his wedding. He looked so happy. They talked about how happy he was at the wedding. They talked about how the house, everybody wanted to come over to their house from athletes it was the place to be yeah so their relationship when it early relationship time was great and through the the wedding scenes but then it started to deteriorate and change and one of the first things that nicole mentioned one of the earliest things that happened is that she was pregnant and her appearance changed pregnant women gain weight and for oj that was an extreme issue yeah you know and it was interesting as i was watching i wondered well what happened to his first wife marguerite you never hear anything about her i wondered if they had the same sort of domestic issues so i looked it up and in 1995 during the trial she did one interview with barbara walters and she said if oj had ever tried to put his hands on her he would have got hit upside the head with a <laughs> frying pan she said he never touched her there were never reports of police activities so that just goes to show you you know usually they say that um abusers have a pattern but in this instance it appears that whatever happened so he, started with Nicole. so she didn't say anything about emotional abuse physical no See, as a matter well, of fact he accused her of physical really? and emotional abuse <laughs> during their divorce trial and um obviously towards the end there was over money but right. eventually they settled and that was it she went on and lived a quiet life away from the spotlight. Wow. Well, I think it has to go to some degree to talk about Nicole's psyche then as a, as a female, maybe because she was younger than OJ, maybe she wasn't very experienced with many men or serious relationships because clearly it was a pattern that OJ was abusing her. And I guess at the start, she never stood up for herself or kind of put her hand up and said, you can't do that. Where maybe Marguerite just laid it on him straight on, like, you can't do that. And she was stronger, and maybe Nicole just wasn't strong enough. And so OJ could get away with it once, he could get away with it twice, and so on. Because at one point, when we see the scene where she calls the police, she said it was like the eighth time. It's happened eight, eight times. Eight times. Right. I mean, Which is crazy. And, and that's that eight times you call. So, like, yeah, so it's happened Eight times that. people, she called, and the police came out. And you saw pictures from some of those times where she was clearly Brutal. bruised yeah. and yes. swelling and swollen. And you understand that athletes and celebrity are extended a certain amount of privilege, which, if you think about it, everyone wants to be extended the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Everyone has had a time when they've messed up and, you know, it was a one-off, they don't want it to ruin everything, and there are people that help you, and you thank those people for giving you a chance. But with OJ, it, it was, you know, a sickness. He He used people to manipulate them, and he knew just how to do it with his charm and his smile well, I think well, that speaks to several different things. So one of the things we discuss is the psyche. And it's discussed that 
OJ had a problem. We know about his father being gay and how that affected OJ. And we mentioned it in the documentary when it comes up later, I believe with his children or someone watching the kids. Yes. That son, Nicole sat his, with his son next to a gay man and OJ freaked out. Right. When they exactly. Away. Exactly. Things like that. It, it shows that as well, well as he was hiding things, I love the term they used in that episode one this superficial pleasantness Mm -hmm. there was always something underlying and as he got older we see the rising tension i think it's also important to note that nicole yes 18 young she relied on oj for everything there's a reason she was a waitress at the daisy not necessarily a part owner well here's the thing though she was 18 but her parents were you know certainly not oj established but they were definitely somewhat established the thing that is interesting that i found once she got further into the relationship oj was taking care of her whole family his father had a hertz ownership um he paid for one of her sisters to go to college at usc so there's so many different things that are layered into her staying together besides not just her immediate family and those children, but her extended family. Well, I've heard this is where I'm going to go back to the abuse for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't happen with Marguerite, so that we know of, right? So and it starts happening with Nicole. Now, football players, I don't know if you know this, but, you know, the NFL's on an investigation with CTE. concussion. Yeah, yes. CTE. You know, a lot of people think that he had CTE. You know, maybe he didn't have it with Marguerite and maybe he developed it later from Nicole and just got worse and worse and worse. I think that looks like more of the pattern to me than he was abusive all his life and that makes a lot of all sense. of a sudden just started becoming abusive from Nicole. But do you think also there were accusations of drug use? Obviously, I don't yeah. know if you saw, you know, in the wedding video, someone yeah. was like, where's the drugs at their wedding? The yeah. house was obviously the party spot. So, Certainly, Could alcohol be. and drug jealousy. He was a jealous, jealous person, yeah. and yes. I'm not diagnosing him with CT. I'm no, just, no, no, I'm no, just no, opening I mean, it up as a possibility. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that makes Absolutely. a lot of sense. Yeah. I would not be surprised given the number of players who had domestic violence issues right. and once Junior they passed Seau on, killed himself, right? Suicide. There's um, been the football num- player from Kansas City. Of, yeah. yeah, number of players. We can go on and on about the players. Absolutely, I think that's a clear, uh, great point about the CTE, and also. I, there was a quote about his jealousy. They said he was as jealous as he was good at football. Wow. Which is pretty deep. <laughs> Which, bringing it back to football, it brought up an interesting point. We're introduced to his relationship with Marcus Allen, who yeah. was a running back at USC, much in the mold of OJ. A younger, He's OJ, you know, 2.0, essentially. OJ. And OJ took him under his wing. I guess they acted together on that first and 10 show that used to be on HBO and generally were friends. And what we learn as we, you know, Nicole gains her independence and is tired of OJ's cheating ways and just growing as a woman. And as she starts to leave, they went through several separations. Um, 1989, I believe, was the year when New Year's Eve, the most explosive um, altercation happened between the two of them where the Mm -hmm. police officer came and Nicole came out of the bushes. And And he escaped in his Bentley. Yeah. (laughs) He's getting away. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that, I mean, the police officer's report on that, he even said in it, he believed that OJ would kill her. The fact that there's no link to the other seven times that this happened to me, is a bigger issue, you know, with that police department and sort of shows the 
the opposite ends of the spectrum between what's going on with the privileged and what happens in South LA. Those people aren't given the benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. And OJ is overextended that privilege. Given way more than the benefit yeah. of the doubt. Just given the keys, go do whatever you want, pretty much. And it was a cool Definitely. quote. Uh, guy said, celebrity transcends race and color. Absolutely. I thought that was yes. an awesome quote, And it, it's really true. We also, you know, learn more about his relationship with AC Cowlings, which I have to be honest... Very peculiar friendship. Yeah. Very, yes. very peculiar friendship. And it also makes me think about OJ's father. Yes. And are there other things yes, yes. that bonded OJ and AC and I together? Didn't, I didn't want to say it to be funny, but I think, you know, it is a possibility. Especially the way he acts. Uh, not OJ. AC acts. I mean, you're buying it's, matching cars. You, yeah. Here's the thing that was always so puzzling to me. AC drove the getaway car. But he also is speaking at Nicole's memorial service. It's just... It, it's, it's weird. It's a lot. Uh, it's, it's weird. Too much. I think it speaks to a, definitely an issue. Exactly what I'm not a physician or psychiatrist to say, but I do believe it's easy to determine that he was very obsessed with OJ on a level that you would not categorize as normal. Right. And this all. was before he was famous, too. Yes. This was always. Since they were in high school. That, I mean, they told story. the story about him stepping in front of the gun. Right. He was going to take a bullet for OJ. Yeah. Look, I know that they're <laughs> ride or die homies, but explain to me what he had done for you at that point. Right. That you're willing to take a bullet for him. And you could even justify that, but you can't justify still being friends with him after he steals your girlfriend. Exactly. And then marries that girlfriend. Exactly. And then has kids with that girlfriend. Exactly. <laughs> the whole thing. And then leaves her. Yeah. I can't. No. I don't care who you are. So, kind of going back to Marcus Allen for a second, we learned that Marcus and OJ had a tight friendship, and eventually Marcus and Nicole had yeah. an interesting relationship where they began sleeping together. It wasn't really clear to me if they were in an actual relationship or if it was just I know Marcus was married at the time so I, if I it was just kind of was a fling. It's a fling like, thing. I felt it was a fling. type of thing. It was a fling. They kind That's of were probably friendly to begin with and that led to just some more yeah. but I didn't think it was really like official. Do you know what I found the most interesting about this? OJ still let Marcus get married at his house after he found out about that affair. It's interesting. It's just so so many weird things. It, it, it kind of feels like with OJ at this point, too, that he's kind of just depends the day, the time of the day, which OJ you're going to get. Yeah. That's a good point. You might get the OJ that's the charmer, he's good to go, and then by night he's about to attack. And it just depends what day you're on with him. He could be hot or cold really quickly. Yeah. Speaking to that, I felt like it was a... OJ playing an angle when I saw that with Marcus because when I think about it he's getting to that point where he's maybe not as connected with the younger athletes coming up Marcus was his tie to say that hey you know still being a part of this world in the NFL because he'd done his steps to distance himself he was it's said he wasn't the best commentator he had the deal but he did receive a lot of criticism He's focusing on his entertainment career. So I feel like his relationship with Marcus, it was just OJ playing another card. I also I also it. kind of think that OJ might have been a little jealous of Marcus. Absolutely, yeah. 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 And so to kind of maybe... He saw himself, his younger self and, that right, got away better, from him. A better yes, self. Yes, yeah. And, and because the younger thing, maybe you're living in the past a little bit. And I think he probably wanted to keep Marcus a little close or kind of have a little keep control. Keep enemies close. Yeah. Right, have a little control over the situation. And that's kind of where I felt on that. We also learn about o- the extent of OJ's jealousy when we learn about OJ being in the bushes 
outside of Nicole's home watching her and her boyfriend at the time having relations. So, I mean, you have to really think about the psychology of a person that is going to sit there and watch you and then come back the next day to confront you. I mean... Well, definitely the accounts by Keith Zlomsowicz. I hope I said that right, Keith Z. I felt they were very chilling. When you say, when you hear just the extent of OJ's jealousy, the physicality, the amount of uh, terror he tried to put in Nicole, I thought that was um, that was just phenomenal content that I don't think people have seen in a long time. And, and he he even mentioned Keith did. He said OJ came in, Bart. He wanted to talk to Nicole separately. Yeah. He could hear them loud, and then when he walked out, he shook his hand like it was all like normal or cool. Yeah. And he said he flipped the switch. He yeah. was that OJ. Crazy. You know, that's like, that's hey, a sign man. of a psychopath, right? Yeah. I mean, he he or a sociopath. Yeah. one of the two. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just flipping it oh. up, you know, at any given moment, mm-hmm. and just regaining that smile. So, um, I think that we can head into episode three now. Yeah. We did pretty good. <laughs> if we miss something, let us know in the comments. Please Absolutely. let us know. Yes. Catch it Because it is a huge episode. It and it's, it's sparked so much discussion on social media. I think that, thank you to everyone who's watching because we've gotten so many views. And I think it's because everyone is wants to get in on this conversation. It's riveting. Yes. It's really riveting stuff that everybody can can watch and feel a part of and kind of understand, think about where they were, their family, how it relates to everyone. It's yeah, definitely. So moving into episode three, which sort of gets us ready for the trial and the events leading up to the murders and the arrests. One thing that I found interesting that we learned was OJ's punishment for the New Year's Eve event. He basically got to coordinate a golf tournament, you know, 120 hours of community service. He also did that horrible interview with Roy Firestone, who was flamed on social media about the softball questions he threw at OJ in that interview, um, where he sort of just, once again, shrugged off the incident and just sort of left it up as a night of too much drinking and a little out of control, when now we know, seeing those photos, that it was actually much more brutal than that. Um, so I, I was oh, just going to mention that I think that speaks to, yes, his preferential treatment, they mentioned that, but also how in the pockets he had the LAPD, at least through Ron Ship. There's no question that he did cultivate a relationship that did garner him a pass. In but no you sense. know, here's the thing that I think about that. I don't even, I mean, he garnered a relationship that adhered them even more, but at the same time, what did they talk about? One thing that you know is that what the, what's the quote that you said again, Josh? Um, <laughs> celebrity transcends race or color. And yes. I think that you will find that a reoccurring theme in no matter what we're talking about, people want to be close to other successful people. Yes. And yeah. so for those cops, even if they didn't necessarily have that buddy-buddy relationship with OJ, they probably would have wanted to. So it's it felt like that moment in the sun. Mm-hmm. Also, you said a great point in part one, and they mentioned, he even mentioned it in part two, I didn't quickly mention it, but he said you are judged on your abilities. So yeah. it, it didn't matter, you know, any skin color or whatnot. It's just you're judging your abilities. And you said that last week. I, I wanted to mention that. So as we head into episode three, we start building up. We obviously know that OJ and Nicole at this point are separated, that Nicole is dating and for the first time really enjoying her life as a young woman because she's never had that. She's been with OJ from her late teens, you know, all of her 20s. And now she is enjoying herself, going out with friends and trying to free herself 
from the former life with him. But we all know he's very, very controlling. So they had a dance recital for Sydney that the entire family went to that night. And then there was a dinner afterwards. And Nicole's mother left her glasses at the restaurant. And we kind of know what happens from there (laughs) Um, and everything that's going on. What I wanted to ask you guys about is that there is a book that was written by William Deere. Um, that came out a couple of years ago that presented an alternate theory. Because one thing that people have always talked about is if OJ didn't do it and all of that evidence, who could have? And it brings up OJ's son, Jason, who had military training and some psychological issues and presents a bunch of different theories of how it, you know, could have been him or so forth. As we went through the trial, the pieces leading up to, you know, Mark Furman, which we can all talk about all day, and all the botched moves. I, side note, the star of episode three, if we pick one for each one, was definitely Carl Douglas, the prosecutor. Yes. <laughs> he had, I had a couple great Carl stories. <laughs> but um, from your perspective, what in that episode, because it was so many things, it was the trial, it was the Bronco chase, it was, you know, OJ once again saying, I'm OJ, I'm not black, you know, the fans that were waiting outside along the that was like a parade the bronco chase when you think about it a slow la is big on high-speed chases we know helicopters that was a parade procession so and he was in control completely complete control so talk a little bit about your thoughts on sort of that time then you know what you might have felt from now well Well, go ahead yeah I was just going to say, when I look at that, I think it speaks to very much the magnitude of OJ's uh, celebrity just in Los Angeles. The fact that they said this wasn't a chase. This was an escort to his house. So it seemed, yeah. Yes, but more than that, I think it's going into it. um, When we look at the case, when we break it down, the fact that it's this beautifully shot merging of this incredible character as far as, uh, you know, parts of his psyche parts of his celebrity, just his personality, and now combined with the climate of the time, it made for a story that's just completely unique. And I think that's why even now, now, but even back then, it just captured the nation's attention. It was the perfect storm of everything. Yes. That's the way I look at the OJ case. It was just a perfect storm of celebrity, uh, racial issues, just sports. Everything you can think of that America loves and defines America, it was just the perfect storm. And it also, for me, I feel it began our the TMZ Asian. That's not even a word, but the TMZ Asian, so to speak, <laughs> of Maybe news and you know twenty four seven coverage, yeah. but uh, from the sensationalized angle because that trial, as we saw, took off major you know daytime soap operas and afternoon shows, and everyone was tuned in. I believe they said at its peak, a hundred and fifty million people were watching Jeez. watched the OJ trial. Throughout those months of, um, and, and even I, before the trial, I interrupted my Knicks Rockets game. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm a huge Knicks well, fan. That anniversary is tomorrow. Twenty two years. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't know. The first thing I thought was it was very riveting. But there was two things, and I don't know why I thought them. But I thought that Kato Kalin was so oblivious <laughs> that he's just in his uh, back house. He thought OJ was in Chicago, and then he mistook the murder for the earthquake or bang- like the banging on the wall. It was almost suspicious. Right? An earthquake? Yeah. Like, what was he doing? Was yeah. he on drugs? drugs. Yeah. Like, so I, I, lots of drugs. He, he yes. thought it was an yeah. earthquake? Yeah. They yeah. They drugs. They <laughs> he didn't even, well. like, come out to yeah. look or he just... Drugs. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? 
saying, I mean, really. It was portrayed Drug. very well in the dramatization, The People versus O.J. Yeah. Simpson, which is, uh, that was another great piece, uh, you know, about this time. Yeah. Kato Kalin was very, uh... Oblivious. It, it, yes. So, for, he had a... <clears throat> Recreational reasons why yeah, he was right. so oblivious. Oh, also, I had a question because they talked. They talked about how OJ stopped for McDonald's, but it, I wonder what. Like, what did he order at McDonald's? That I night? mean, you know, fries and nuggets. I don't know. Just- <laughs> I know it's random. I don't know why my brain went there, but I was like, I wonder. Was that, that was like the last thing he ate before he comes home and he basically commits the murder. So I was just like, what did he get from McDonald's? Like, what set him off? Was it like, he just got a bad Big Mac, and then he's like, this is it, or Whatever it is, I'm 90% sure he supersized it. (laughs) (laughs) That The timeline of the murders was always intriguing to me, because it was about 15 minutes that they say, you know, OJ got to Nicole's house, the brutality of those murders. We know Ron Goldman fought for his life and ultimately did not make it. We know the brutality of the murders. Nicole was almost severed um, at her head. And then he made it home. And I know that there was a lot of blood evidence. Something that I discovered that this trial was the first and only murder trial that Marsha Clark lost. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. And she said that this trial had an abundance of evidence more than any other trial she had tried before. Yeah. So I just thought that that really goes to show how your team, because ultimately they were out-legaled. If you just want to come down to it. And I feel like even in 20-something years later, Marsha can't let go of that. She can't just acknowledge that. Just, you know, they were out. I can understand that. They do a great job. Marsha Clark provided a great account of her side of the story and the thing is they portrayed it very well she was the person for the job for the district attorney to say hey this was this is the attorney who's going to get this guy who brutally killed them it doesn't matter that he is oj simpson she didn't care about that I and love- she had tried hollywood trials before um there was an actress named rebecca schaefer that was murdered by a stalker and she you know got him locked away so her proximity to celebrity as far as court cases wasn't absent although i did find it interesting that she said she didn't know who oj was but she knew he was washed up the math is kind of not <laughs> I'm 100% that sure, you know, in but, the time okay. since then, I feel like she learned. But I also think it's very noticeable to add that in terms of the case, the climate of the time, it was it is as much a part of OJ's defense as his dream yeah. team with Johnny Cochran. On it a really side was. note, how unique does it have to be that your lawyer became famous Defending you, I, I mean, we just don't see that today. At least I can't think well, of. Which one, Cochran? You talking about? I mean, yeah, I think that, no, Cochran was, was, was already famous. Yeah, he was already famous. He was, yes. he was in L.A. He that yeah. was well, his profile grows so much. I mean, obviously, way. it grew a lot, but he was really beloved in Los Angeles, and those were the issues that he was fighting day in and day out. Those issues of you know civil rights for victims behind the police, and you know those different charges. So he very much was in the community, and in theory, going with that. Defense, it only made sense to pick up Cochran, but obviously the irony is that OJ never considered himself black. Right. But as the elders say, chickens always come home to roost, <laughs> and you will quickly remember who you are. You can't run away from something like well, that. Also, of course, this was another area where we see OJ benefiting from the cops, because we yeah. can say he got the the legal teams won and whatnot, but the questioning that the cops did to OJ yeah. when they brought him in was so awful. Softball, yeah. Yes. It was... I mean, it seemed like, come on, from every step. And even when you look at Mark Furman, Mark Furman made major mistakes that allowed the openings for the legal team to come in. 
see, I Down think the road. that with, uh, if you think about the entire case, from the prosecution to the officers, I think that there was an arrogance with the way that they handled things. Even Marsha Clark in thinking, black women like me. Why do you think that? I mean, and I'm not saying that but, they wouldn't, but just sort of, and right. I understand their approach. They had a lot of evidence and they were confident, but you're dealing with uh, the best legal team that money can buy. And I feel like they should that should have weighed on them a little bit more. That F. Lee Bailey, you know, he solved big cases in the 70s. Um, so I think part of it, um, if it, not so much the prosecution, because if it was complacent, when you think about it, this is the first time Marsha Clark didn't get that vote, as we said. You know, she'd won a lot of cases. She was leaning on what she knew. Uh, that lends to how unique this court case, court case was. Added into that, the jury selection. Yeah, I thought I, it was very brilliant that they added the fact that the demographic that they wanted for their jury, they just couldn't get because they simply weren't available to be sequestered for six months. Right. Whereas the selection that favored the defense, they were available, and that is a big part of it. I, and I, I think she, oh. I think it was more important. Like she was more worried about that than she let us on. Yeah, because I, so. um, I think I'm not sure if it was her who said it, but it was a stat saying that 10 percent of blacks thought it was likely that OJ was guilty. Only 10 percent of them. So if you have eight jurors who are black, your odds, yeah. yeah, you know what I mean. So I, I think they were more worried about that than they let on. And I also think that um, more than likely. I think that they didn't expect the case to, you know, sort of stay where it was. We had seen the Rodney right. King case move to Simi Valley. You know, they were hoping maybe Santa Monica. It would have been a vastly different case. And I did what I didn't like was the implication by Gil Garcetti and Marsha Clark that the jurors weren't smart enough to get it. I think that that killed from the start. Set, yeah. the, set the wrong tone for it the prosecution. The tone. Yeah, and then Johnny Cochran's rebuttal to it was perfect. Yeah, yes, and I, I think that set the tone for the whole case. To be honest with you, one thing to note is that Ron Ship, who was with the LAPD and OJ's friend, he wasn't with it anymore that day after OJ flew back from Chicago. Yeah, he immediately noticed the differences in OJ's alibi, and for whatever reason, was mm-hmm. like, "Nope, not this is the guy who kills somebody." <laughs> all the, diff- all the different <laughs> versions of the cutting of his finger yeah. that yeah. he was telling. So um, I thought that, you know, it was interesting that everybody didn't take that ride with OJ, although, you know. Additionally, right, it was it was surprising, or at least it showed how Nicole, Nicole's sister said how quickly she knew he did it. Right. Like right away. She was so certain. It came off as chilling almost. I mean, for me, you have to think... the amount of years that they were married and the type of brutality, you know, I read things that said that OJ would lock her in the closet and um, drag her across the floor. I read something that said he locked her. They were in Las Vegas one time and he locked her in. There was a private suite for their hallway. Mm -hmm. So he kicked her out of the hotel room and left her in the hallway. Um, Maybe I'm wrong, but I just find it hard to believe that they didn't know what was happening and they may not have known the true extent but they had to have known in my opinion something that's a number of years for them to have been married in a number of situations and I know that that's a difficult thing to talk about um, the abuse of someone with their family and it's sort of hard to work that line but it's hard for me to think that they were just unaware I don't think they were unaware at all I'm pretty sure they actually had conversations with her and tried to get her to leave him I'm pretty sure they did actually if you listen to her sister talk I mean it sounds pretty obvious that she was against the whole relationship and she did everything she could Yeah, if there's one thing I feel that it just speaks to the fact that 
it's always so much more complicated yeah. than anyone uh, outside the situation situation can yeah. know when it comes to leaving an abusive and then relationship. And you're going to call the police, and when the, the police seem to be on this guy's side every time that right. they're involved, I mean, there's only so much you can do. I, I think mean, Nicole re- was so victimized. And I yeah. think it reverts back to the passion thing. It's it's the low lows and the high highs, and, yeah. and so it's hard. You know, you kind of put the the bad situations away after a couple of days or whatever, and you think, okay, we can make it work. And you have a good moment, you think everything's great, and then it's terrible and just wild. Um, kind of going back a bit, um, circling back to the helicopter pilot that was the first to sort of spot OJ in the Bronco when they were on the run. He said something that I thought was really interesting for him to point out, that he was like, hey... Black people usually don't get to turn themselves in <laughs> when they're being charged with, you know. So there are all these things that set up that OJ really, I mean, we know that he didn't transcend his race, but in a lot of ways he did. He was given a lot of privilege that no one else would have been extended, you know, black or white, really, if they didn't have the celebrity attached to it. So sort of circling around to the trial and some of the stories that we heard um, from Carl Douglas, what did you think about the staging of OJ's house and the efforts that they made to make OJ seem more black, for lack of a better term, for the jurors? I mean, it's smart on the, you know, you have eight black women as as jurors, I think it's really smart. And he said that if they were Mexican, they would have a sombrero and a mariachi band. And a pinata at the top of the steps. Uh, That's why I missed that part. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Oh my God. When they talked about Christopher Darden, I really kind of felt bad for Christopher Darden in this because he was in a no-win situation. Obviously, the prosecution did need someone of color on there to sort of handle right. the sensitive areas. It's only right. That's what inclusion is. That's that's what you fight for. But the fact that they brought him in so late in the game, it set him up to look like a token. Mm-hmm. And yes. they demolished him in court. Yeah, he got destroyed. No, yes, he, I guess you could argue that he made so many of the crucial mistakes. Um, we're going to get into that, I'm assuming, in part four. But they do mention it. It's his role in the case is also a very yeah. large part of um, the People versus O.J. Simpson. Yeah. But I think they, Johnny Cochran, being the experienced uh, legal, I don't want to say advice, well, legal advisor that he is, he just made the point that he understood that he could influence the fact that they saw him as an Uncle Tom. Um, I thought I thought it was interesting that they had a quote from OJ while he was in jail and said the system has forced me to see things racially where I never have before. Yeah. And then there was something else he said about if this jury convicts me, then I guess I'm guilty. Right. Then maybe I did do yeah, it. Yeah, maybe I did do it. I mean, he's, just, a- he's arrogant. He beyond arrogant. Yeah, it's just bizarre. Really. He was out of his mind. He really at was. that point. He was out of his mind. I mean, even going back to the excuses that he gave. Um, when he cut his finger. Yeah. Oh what normal person is going to give three different excuses on the same night? Like, that's crazy to me. If I'm going to lie, I'm going to tell the same lie at least. Right. Keep it consistent. He, right? yeah. It's just like spewing whatever comes out of yeah. his mouth in that moment. It's like he said, And no. not expecting any consequences. Right. right. Like, no, yeah. this one sounds better. Okay, I'm going to go with this, and they're not even going to pay attention yeah. to the fact just that I just said that. It wasn't yeah. even like he wasn't around ship. It's just like he's around the same guy telling different stories right. to other people. It's just so, so bizarre. So, um... 
as we end off in episode three, we are obviously, you know, setting up the end of the trial of the century. We reach the moment with the gloves and they discuss how OJ began to play to the jewelry. I mean, jewelry, sorry. Jewelry. <laughs> you know, he began to play to the jury when he walked up with the gloves and sort of get his showmanship on his stepped up acting skills. Um, you know, wait, going back for a second, something I thought was interesting was one of OJ's early roles was the movie The Affair with Elizabeth yes. Montgomery Bewitched. I thought, how telling was that? He was playing a cop, there was battles over their relationship and someone trying to tear them apart. It seemed that a lot of projects and things that he was involved with kind of foreshadowed his mm-hmm. future. But back to present times, we see that OJ can't fit the gloves and Marsha Clark, um, as Carl Douglas said, began to shrink in her seat. Um, we saw moments of that if you watch The People versus OJ. Did you expect, I guess, well, did you expect? We know now. But do you really think that that moment sealed it for the jury? I know that we've heard different things, but do you think the gloves was the moment that just knock the case away from them or do you think that it was much earlier with Mark Furman and the lies and the backpedaling or just the consistent little small things that point to um, mishandling of the case? I don't think you could necessarily say it's it was just one thing in a case like this. Certainly the gloves are a big part of it but when you think about the statements Mark Furman made you know, even before they get started really in court, that's already something that's like, well, obviously he didn't do it. And also take into account the climate of the time. The fact that the persona of OJ, who tried so much to separate from the fact that he was black, and yet uh, I forget um, the reverend, if I'm not mistaken, who said it quite simply, it, none of it mattered. And he just points at his hand because we still saw him just like that. I think that's the most telling that the fact that this was an accumulation of events, evidence, and that's really what got it done. Certainly the gloves, but I think it was an accumulation personally. Yeah, I agree with exactly everything he just said. And also I used the word the words perfect storm before. Same thing, you know, I, with everything going on in Los Angeles, with him being black, being a celebrity, I think it was just a perfect storm and... <laughs> it all just, just like came it, together. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree. I think that it wasn't one exact moment. Uh, a bunch of moments all put together. Uh, the legal teams, the the people associated with it, the climate, the time. I, I think that clearly the glove moment, it was never going to be a positive for the prosecution. Because the glove was never going to fit. <laughs> right. Um, so you sort of brought up the reverend and how it didn't matter when it comes down to it. Sort of, that's one thing about the black community. Even if there are members that have sort of shunned them, if they get in trouble or something happens, we welcome back our own, so to speak, because we know of the injustices and so forth. But I know I was noticing on social media when I was watching it that a lot of people in the community now feel played as if the same information wasn't available to them then. They feel like, oh, we supported OJ and he did it and he didn't even care about us. And I feel that people of that time knew that because it was never a secret. OJ was always very vocal about denying his race and what it comes down to are those other elements within the LAPD and all of the corruption. There were even things, um, the chokehold, which um, was brought up, had been um, um, banned by the time the incident happened with Rodney King, which is why they said they used the excessive force. And Daryl Gates was asked for a quote about it, and his quote was, well, they, referring to black people, react differently to it. Um, 
So it just set it up that you know that as African Americans in Los Angeles, you're not going to get a fair shot no matter what. And so they welcome back OJ in. But do you think that people should feel played for supporting? You know, it's interesting. I don't know if people thought of it as supporting a murder. More, um, they thought of it sort of as taking down LAPD and the corruption there and all of those type of things. I mean, I'm not an African-American, so I can't really speak for them. But from my perspective, it just looked like African-Americans just wanted to beat the system one time. Just for once. They didn't care that he murdered Nicole. They, they, They just... They just wanted to beat the system. Period. And That's it. Was the so much injustice has happened to them, and so many times that they've seen, you know, people get away with things that they have done to their community. That they just did not care what the circumstances were. They wanted to get away with something. They wanted to beat the system. And this that was, was it. their chance to get back at it. Yes. Uh, OJ was, uh, in a sense, he was the perfect vehicle. He was a guy who should be innocent uh, as far as being the charming guy from Hertz. Yeah. How could he do it? That was the public persona. Obviously, the it's been brought to light, you know, the reality. But I think that's what, you know, Josh is getting at. There was, yeah. He was just that character for them to win against the system. I mean, you grew up in Los Angeles and you're African-American. So how do you... I mean, so, so for me, I felt like I thought that there was a possibility that he can do it. But I believe in the justice system. I right. think that you have to extend those rights and foundations to the worst of us in order to protect the best of us in our society. Right. And I feel that they beat them on reasonable doubt. That is what they inserted in there. And essentially, that's what got him off. So as we are heading into the weekend in episodes four and five, are there any things that you are looking forward to being covered um, in the last two episodes of this or things that you'd like more clarity on or you hope they go more into detail about? Um, I haven't watched four and five. I don't know if you guys have. I have not. Um, no. Just the aftermath of the trial. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm looking forward to see like the breakdown. I, I don't I don't remember too much of it. But uh, just, yeah, the aftermath between, you know, how white people reacted and how black people reacted, how the society reacted and how we, you know moved on as a society i'm curious to know yeah i feel like we're going to get an account how did oj feel about now having to accept his blackness in order to you know prove he was innocent because it's also going along with the defense that was cooked up for him that hey this will get you free but it's going to go against everything he's ever built up in his life so getting an inside account of that that's something i'm looking forward to yeah, I'm just looking for new footage that, that, <laughs> that you haven't seen before. Because there's two more full episodes, which yeah. is so much. Right. I'm so. I've excited. learned a lot more than I thought. Like I didn't know a lot, especially like race relations, like, all these specific cases, and everything that happened in Los Angeles. I had no idea that. I mean, I knew they happened, but I didn't know it was like this. The impact of it yeah. and everything. Yes. For me, I'm Absolutely. looking forward to seeing. Um, because the thing is, I think what OJ didn't account for. It's like, yes, you got your freedom, but you're no longer OJ. And I think oh. that that was the hardest thing for him to deal with. And ultimately, what landed him back in jail um, for those 33 years. So that's it for episodes two and three. Make sure you check us out here on Sunday for episodes four and five, the wrap up. I am Jill Monroe. You can check me out on all social media. That's Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, at Stiletto Jail. Make sure that you download the podcast and leave us five stars, please. (laughs) Hey guys, I'm Gabriel Gonzalez. To discuss everything OJ Made in America and everything I'm involved with at AfterBuzz TV, you can catch me on Twitter at Double G on TV. I'm Josh Rodriguez. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Josh underscore Rodriguez. Don't be afraid to have a conversation with me. And I'm Michael Rippy. You can find me all over social media at Mike Rips. It's right here in the toolbar. Smooth. Thanks. We like that. (laughs) See you guys next time. Thank you. Take care. 
from executive producers Maria Manunos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire AfterBuzz TV staff, we would like to thank you for listening to the AfterBuzz TV network. To watch or listen to other after shows and post comments or questions, be sure to visit AfterBuzzTV.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of AfterBuzz TV. Buzz you later. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principals.